Under most of your seats, uh, in most of the pews, is a new international version. Would you reach for that, or if you have an NIV Bible, will you take yours and turn there to Psalm 8? And I want to ask us to read together there in unison. Psalm 8, if you have or if you can obtain an NIV, they are the pew Bibles. And in honor of God's word, would you stand now for this reading of it? Congregation, if you have an NIV translation, uh, would you read together in unison with me? Psalm 8. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. From the lips of children and infants you have ordained praise. Because of your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? You have made him a little lower than heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You made him ruler over the works of your hands and put everything under his feet, all flocks and herds, and the beasts of the field, the birds of the air and the fish of the sea, all that swim the paths of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. This is God's word. Would you be seated? Father, may the words of my lips and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. At a reception for visiting scholars at St. Andrews University, one of the regular faculty came over to me and asked, I say, are you a royalist? Well, before I could even begin to answer, frankly, before I could even get my mind unfogged to understand the meaning of the question, he said, oh yes, I forgot. You're an American. And the way he enunciated that word, I knew it was not a compliment. (laughs) Then he went on and said, oh yes, you don't know about these things. I later found out that he had just published a book on the monarchy, that he was one of the leaders of the royalist faction in Britain. He had just come back from a speaking tour, uh, uh, promoting his book on radio shows and television talk shows in Britain. It's a group that appreciates, uh, particularly appreciates, the role of the royals in civic society and in civic life. Stephanie and I happened to be over in Great Britain at the death of the Queen Mother, and we saw the pomp and pageantry with which the mourning of that nation expressed their grief and sorrow for a royal personage who had walked through them through dark days and bright mornings for generations, and we were moved. And as many an American has pondered, Compared with our British contemporaries, we are at a disadvantage 
in cultivating a sense of reverence and majesty for a sovereign, whether earthly or heavenly. In his classic book, Knowing God, James Packer has a chapter, a whole chapter on the majesty of God, and he notes that the lack of the sense of majesty in the American mindset is key, or a key to why our faith is so frail and our worship so flaccid. We have a God that we have made into our our own image, hardly the Lord of Lords and King of Kings. And consequently, we regularly don't have a God that is large enough to solve our problems, much less a God who is worthy enough of our time to take time for him in prayer and praise and adoration. Now, the psalm we've just read together, Psalm 8, begins and ends on the same note with the same word. So, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. The two words for Lord there are not the same. Often, and in your version, the first Lord is all in capitals. It's by way of saying this is a personal name for God, Yahweh. Oh, Yahweh. Our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And etiologists say that that Yahweh really stems back to the name God gives himself. It's a strange name in Exodus 3 when he speaks his angel, which is himself, speaks from the burning bush. Who, Who shall I say sent me? I am that I am. So Yahweh, the one who occupies absolute being, the one from whose being has no beginning and no ending, the one whose being sustains all things and is all things, He depends on nothing for his being. All else depends on him. How majestic Yahweh is your name. Oh, Yahweh, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. By using that personal name of Lord, that means there is no rivals beside you. You are beyond compare. You have no visible or invisible competition anywhere. You are above all things everywhere. He sustains everything at all times. He is the ground and goal of all things. He is greater and wiser and more beautiful and more wonderful than anything and everything everywhere. O Yahweh, our Lord, our Master, our Redeemer, our King, our Sovereign, How majestic is your name in all the earth. That's the main point of the psalm. And it makes it clear by framing everything in it. Verse 1 and verse 9. That's it. The majesty of God. But the seven verses in between illustrate it in two powerful ways. The one we may be more familiar with. And the second, I want the strangeness of it to soak into our souls. First, straightforwardly, the text says, The grandeur of the heavens declare the majesty of God. You have set your glory above the heavens, says Psalm 8. The psalm was written by a shepherd boy who is destined to be a king, one who was created after God's own heart, and we can picture David, can't we? Sitting down on the mountainsides, tending his father's sheep with the Heaven's clear and the stars straightforward above. His father's sheep are bedded down for the night and his heart is filled with awe and wonder. It was Abraham Lincoln who said, I 
I can understand anyone looking down at the earth and saying they're an atheist, but I cannot comprehend anyone looking up at the skies and saying there is no God. David captures this in the verses you have just read. They are verses 3 and 4. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him? I heard of a family recently who camped out on the Mendocino coast and they had three boys and they had a tent big enough for everybody but the boys of course wanted to sleep outside and under the stars and looking up at them and so they took their sleeping bags and were out there but not very long after mom and dad had retired the youngest son came back in with his sleeping bag in the tent and dad said uh, what's the matter son are you, are you too cold out there and he said no I just never realized before how small I am. God declares his glory in the heavens. It's one of the myths of the modern mind that scientific investigation is not complementary to Christian faith. Oh yes, they're few, they're really kind of detours, really kind of odd in my opinion. Uh, theoretical frameworks in a very small subset of biology which claims to say something that we conflict, but biology as a whole, and dare I say, all of physics and all of astronomy, the, the, the huge march of contemporary science is contiguous with and complementary to Christian faith. It could be summed up in the astronomer Robert Gestro's famous concluding words to his book God and the Astronomers. He writes, for the scientists for the scientist who has lived by his faith in the power of reason, the story ends like a bad dream. He has scaled the mountains of his ignorance. He is about to conquer the highest peak, and as he pulls himself over the final rock, he is greeted by a band of theologians who have been sitting there for centuries. God declares his glory through the heavens. Now, secondly, God declares his glory through weakness, and particularly the weakness of children. Look at the contrast between verses 1 and 2. You have set your glory above the heavens. And then out of the mouth of babes and suckling infants, you have established strength. It's a different translation from your NIV, and it's a better translation. Your NIV is anticipating the point I will make in a second. So in verse 1, you see God in all of his straightforward majesty and power, uncomparable and strong. In verse 2, you see a stark contrast. Babes and suckling Infants in their weakness and lack of wisdom and knowledge totally dependent on others. They are insignificant in the eyes of others, and what are they doing? The text goes on, they are defeating the enemies of God. And they are defeating them by what comes out of their mouth. They are crying or saying something out of the mouth of babes and infants. You, our Lord, have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. So God is making whatever comes out of the mouth of crying, suckling babes and infants strong. 
and it is strong enough to defeat his enemies. Let the strangeness of that sink into you. Verse 2 says, because you have foes, God has enemies. But enemies before the majestic and living God have no strength and have no power. They are dissipated, if he so wanted them to be. God can make anything he chooses simply go out of existence. But instead, God chooses to defeat his enemies, according to Psalm 8.2 with what comes out of the mouth of babes. God conquers his foes through the weakness of the weak. It is written throughout scriptures. This past spring, Rex Shaver, who was back uh, from the East Coast uh, this morning and with us in the 8.30 service, regaled many of us with a wonderful eight-week series of teaching on the book of Judges, and he borrowed from it his thesis from his dissertation. He looked at violence in the Old Testament. Why did you choose that topic, Rex? Because whenever I'm talking with a non-Christian, within five minutes, and not within two, they go to the violence in the Old Testament. So I wanted to see what it was about, and his thesis was interesting. There's, of course, a whole category of violence which understandably God condemns, but there is a category of violence in the Old Testament which is commended by the and then there's some in-between, but not to complicate mixed-motive violence that Rex said, but three categories, but commendable and non-commendable. And his definition from the commendable violence was violence which was offered up in weakness. Never in pride, not in vanity, not in strength, not to pursue one's own pursuits, not... But David with a slingshot. Whenever God's power had to come in to vindicate his people, to, to assert his righteousness... In weakness. That was the mark of violence that God stood beside. So don't miss this distinctly Christian mark of majesty. God regularly established his, his, his majesty through meekness. The glory of God's strength is greater because it established through human weakness. The glory of God's Wisdom is greater because it is established through human folly. What we regard, human beings, as weak, God makes the means of his victory. What we, human beings, regard as foolish, God uses as the instruments of his triumph. So when Jesus Christ himself, the eternal Son of God, became the God-man, and entered into the world. That was the mark of his majesty, God's strength. His majesty, the Bible tells us, in its strange revelation, is magnified when it is displayed through human weakness. Now, Psalm 8.2 is quoted just once in the New Testament. It is in Matthew 21 during the triumphal entry. Jesus comes in on that Palm Sunday in which he is proclaiming an inverted victory on the back of a donkey, a colt. It's a sign of weakness. But he heads towards the temple, the place where humankind's rendezvous with God is made, where Jesus is going to say, I am the new temple. I'm the place where you're going to meet the Father. And he turns over the tables of the uh, money changers And then he heals the sick and the blind and the lame and the deaf on his way 
The people are crying out, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Hosanna means salvation. So they are proclaiming the majesty. Here's the prophet. Here's the majestic, the, 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 the monarch. Here's the one who is going to deliver us. Here's the savior that will bring salvation. And after he goes to the temple mount and after he heals the lame and the blind and the deaf, the children, the children now enter the story and they are not blind and they are not deaf. And they see what the adults have been doing and they repeat now out of their mouths, Hosea to the son of David, son of David. That's the title of the Messiah. So scribes and Pharisees see this, the enemies of God, if you will. And they say, do you hear what they're saying? What they mean by that, we can fill it out by, do you recognize they're calling you Messiah? You, you know you're not. Do you hear that? Why don't you stop them? Do you hear them? And Jesus says strikingly one word. Matthew 21. Yes. He says some more things, but that's all he says in response to their question. saying, yes, I have heard them. And I know what they're uttering is not foolishness or blasphemy. They are not mistaken in what they are saying. They are correct and right and true. I am the son of David. I am the altogether ising one. You are the son of David, the Messiah. Out of the mouth of babes, he establishes strength. We've seen out of the mouth of babes, God is going to defeat his enemy. Something that comes out of the mouth of children is going to be strong enough to defeat evil. And in Matthew 21, we see that fulfilled. We see it completed out of the mouth of babes. Comes the praise of Hosanna to the son of David, who is the Messiah, the one who is strong enough to overcome all of our evil, all of our wickedness, all of our problems. He is the Messiah. You have said right, he says to the children. I am he. I am the one who before, what was before Abraham himself. Jesus Christ, the God-man, who comes in weakness and saves the world. Christ crucified looks foolish. But all of Scripture aims to teach us that. 1 Corinthians one twenty-five: The foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. If you would have a strong Savior, then embrace a crucified and risen Christ. There's another American who uh, was visiting Britain who was struck by the reverence for sovereignty. It was Jack Hayford in 1977, and he was there on the uh, silver anniversary, the 25th anniversary of the coronation of Queen Elizabeth. And he was struck by the overwhelming majesty and appreciation and sovereignty of what was going on. And he was struck by the sense that our Lord wants us to recognize his majesty that way. He asked his wife to take a notebook out and pin down the lines as he wrote them. We sing them today. Majesty, worship his majesty. 
Unto Jesus be glory, honor, and praise. Jesus is the human face of God, and this anthem reflects it. Worship his majesty, Jesus who died, now glorified King of all kings. Our King of kings is indeed majestic, and it is only proper that we call him majesty. Because he is majestic in every way possible, in his birth, in his death, in his resurrection, in his present reign from everything that happened from creation to the end of all time as we know it. He is the majesty. Living and holy God, we ask your forgiveness for ways in which we squander our lives. We have made you so small and frail that you are not worthy of our time or our belief that you can solve our deepest needs and problems. Teach us how to worship you in majesty that you can be who you are before us and we can be who we are to be before you. For it is in Jesus' name we pray.